You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This week's podcast is brought to you by Shutterstock. You might know of Shutterstock as home to royalty-free photos, but they offer much more. You can kickstart your next interactive project with video clips or music tracks from their collection. All of your creative needs are served to you in one place. You can take advantage today of a 20% discount the company is offering for a limited time at Shutterstock.com slash special slash collider. That's Shutterstock.com slash special slash collider. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... And I felt... felt, felt I feel right. I was so and I just happy. Well, I figured it out. Wow. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week, we bring you stories from scientists who found dream jobs and had to share them with not so dreamy colleagues. Our first story this week is from Margot Wool. It was recorded in November 2016 at Camp Hess Kramer in Malibu, California, as part of our show with SciComm Camp. So it was my sophomore year of college. It was the summer. And I was about to uh, embark on my first real foray into science. And I was really excited and I had no idea what to expect. In fact, I wasn't sure how I really got there. Um, I've always really felt more like an observer um, for everything. This. Uh, kind of manifested itself in my childhood pastimes, which are really just watching things. So watching wildlife, stargazing, just like looking at things. And this really made it into um, how I also felt like I just was always observing my own life, um, that I didn't really have agency and control over it. But I found myself about to do some field work in upstate New York in Millbrook, which was um, a small town of about 1,400 people, and it was home to the abandoned Bennett School for Girls, uh, where rich East Coasters would take their daughters to learn about domestic science. Um, but I felt really fortunate that I lived in a time where I could learn about hard science and where I had really strong female role models that had done really amazing things, even though they were in male-dominated fields, like uh, my grandmother, who started her own architecture practice, and my mother, who was an eye surgeon, and she started her own medical practice. Um, and yet, even with these role models, I really didn't feel like I was going to be one of those women who was really strong and was able to kind of set their own path. Um, but um, back to the science of what I was doing, uh, the, the, my first time kind of out in the field, uh, I was studying Lyme's disease. I was working for a professor at my university, and we uh, were going out uh, 
we have this idea. So Lyme disease, I don't know if you know much about it, but um, it's a bacteria-borne disease, but often it's carried through ticks. And so they'll feed on some hosts, maybe like mice or deer that have the bacteria. Then they fall off of those, come and find us, bite us, and give us this wonderful bacteria um, that if you don't really catch right away, can lead to some pretty debilitating effects. And so the idea of this uh, science project was, well, what if we go in and we immunize the mice? And then they're not able to give the bacteria to the ticks and then the ticks won't give it to us. And so I thought that, wow, this is like a really great idea. Like this is um, really cool. Um, and the way that we would do this is we would go out in the evening around sunset and we'd set the traps. We put these little balls of oatmeal uh, with spiked with, you know, dead bacteria in it. And in the morning we would come and, and mice would kind of come in through the evening, they would eat the oatmeal, and then we would check the traps, and of course we had our, all our controls, the non-spiked oatmeal, all that sort of stuff. And it, it was really fun because we went, when we go in the morning and you'd open the trap, you would not know what you were gonna find. It was like Christmas every morning, except I'm Jewish, and also instead of wearing pajamas, I was wearing this like huge Tyvek suit that I had to tuck into my socks and my gloves, um, pretty suffocating. And so we'd open the traps, and sometimes it'd be chipmunks, and other times it'd be flying squirrels, and then sometimes it'd be mice. And we'd be like, oh, that's what we're studying, that's great. Um, and all this is to say that I was having a really good time, and I really felt in my element uh, outside, collecting samples, collecting data. Um, I thought, like, maybe this is for me, this science thing. Like, I, you know, I, I could do this. Um, and it was, this was a really small-scale operation. So it was me and a postdoc, um, or I should say a postdoc and I, and uh, the boss, the professor from the university, he came up and he trained us for a couple of days. And then he was like, all right, I'm out. I'm going to Russia for six weeks. You're not going to be able to contact me. Um, and I was pretty naive, and I had um, kind of no idea, no, you know, no forethought to say, like, hey, like, why don't we write up a contract? Or, like, who do I even talk to if, like, something isn't quite right? Um, I didn't know that these were the kind of things that you would really want to ask when you're about to be, like, left alone in, in upstate New York um, without a boss. And... Um, the boss did not get to meet the third um, addition to our team. He was hired by a colleague. I'm just going to call him Biff, uh, not his real name. <laughs> Back to the future, anyone? Yeah, this is very foreboding. <laughs> Sorry, foreshadowing. Um, and my boss never met, got to meet this guy because he was in Russia, and I could only assume he was like slamming back some vodka, wrestling some bears. Um, but Biff came in and uh, first day we go out into the field, we're gonna train Biff on how to deal with these mice. And so we go to look in the trap, get the first mouse, and I, you know, I say, okay, you're just gonna go, you're gonna take it by the tail, you know, you put it on your thigh and then hold it by the scruff. It's really like not that terrifying. Um, and the guy, he, he goes in for the mouse and he's so scared that he's kind of like shaking and he just flings the mouse like as far as he can fling it. And it, it, it's like, I'm home free, like <laughs> scurrying away. Um, and I'm like, oh wow, this guy is terrified of mice. Um, so the second, you know, we go to the second trap and I'm like, hey, you know, like just take some deep breaths, it's gonna be okay. So the second mouse, he goes in and he just squeezes it really hard and drops it. And it's this is weird, like, backwards fight or flight kind of response thing going on. Um, 
And so the, this first day left me really perplexed. Like, why is this guy, why was he hired? Like, who is this guy? Um, and, uh, you know, how did he get here? Was, you know, were his resumes mixed up? Was this like a favor for a friend? Like, I have no idea how this guy got here. Um, but, you know, eventually he gets over this fear. And uh, however, there are like other glaring issues with this employee. Um, for instance, he like, you know, will like knock over the vials. He's just, like very careless and he doesn't really seem to care at all about the research, which I, at the time, and I still do, I, ca I cared about the research a lot. And so I took on a lot of his responsibilities. So I would collect the ticks for him or I would enter his data because he couldn't align columns on the spreadsheet. And I just wanted to make sure that it all went well because it's science and it's important. Um, and you know, I didn't really mind that that much. I was like a go-getter, and I, that that didn't really bother me that much. Uh, working extra uh, with the vermin outside was not the big deal. It was the vermin inside that really was getting to me. Um, this meaning, um, you know, I'm, I'm referring to the fact that we all lived in a house together, the three of us, with a shared kitchen and a bathroom, this isolated house, kind of middle of nowhere, and. Um, uh, this guy Biff, he, uh, he he either had recently or was still maybe living with his parents. He was in his mid-30s. Um, and he liked to remind me of how his mom did all of his dishes for him, uh, did all of his laundry, all of his cleaning, um, and that that was kind of how he thought women should be. And um, I, at first I was like, I had never experienced sexism uh, this blatant. And so at first I was like, this is like, almost comical in a way. Um, and you know what I can do is I can just like ignore this and be like, this is almost like so ridiculous, it's funny. Um, and I should just totally ignore it. Um, and that works for a while, but I have to say that over time I was really starting to get like bothered by it. And it was starting to kind of bring up feelings of, um, uh, kind of made me feel small and uh, made me feel powerless. And I, and I didn't talk back to him. So I didn't say like, hey, this is making me feel really uncomfortable or like, hey, this isn't cool. This is not something you can do. Um, I didn't feel as though confrontation was something that I was comfortable with. Um, and I didn't really feel like I, I had a voice. I won't say that, you know, like this kind of sounds like a bummer. And, and the whole summer wasn't a bummer. There were, there were other things to take my mind off of this this kind of negative presence. So I got tons of reading done. It was very lonely. So lots of like singular activities were, were done. Lots of reading. I definitely kept this like local blockbuster in business. You know, it's like around the time blockbusters were going down and I was keeping this one single-handedly alive, um, watching all the Criterion Collection movies. And also, I got to eat my lunches in front of this beautiful, beautiful, decaying, abandoned schools for girls, and I would just always like try to hype myself up, like get over my fear of asbestos and like trespassing to like <laughs> go in there, which I never got over. Um, but you know, I like all things that you kind of try to put away and ignore. Um, at some point, my time with Biff, it, it came to a boil, basically. Like, my anger really came to the surface, and it was just one day that, you know, it was a particularly hot day. We were really sweaty after collecting the mice, and we come home, and his dishes are in the sink, and, you know, I decide to speak up about it, and I say, you know, like, hey, Biff, um, you know, could you please do your dishes? I really don't want to, like, do them, and um, I would really like it if you could do that so I can, you know, cook in the kitchen. Um, and he responds to me very quickly, and he says, you know, you're so lazy, you don't do any work. <laughs> and, you know, at that point I had just been doing all of his, 
his work. And so I, this like flood of anger like rushes through me, which is something I'm like not used to feeling. Um, I don't know if how you guys experience anger, but for me, anger is a very foreign feeling. So I was like, what is this feeling? And it was so, um, it was so visceral. And yet I couldn't say anything and I couldn't do anything. And I, I think I, like I imagined punching him, but I knew that that was something that I wasn't like capable of. And so instead I, um, Tears started streaming down my face, uh, and I turned around and I walked to my car, and I just drove. Um, I was probably listening to some like really moody music, like some Radiohead or something. Um, and I stop in a parking lot, maybe you know, 15 minutes up the road, empty parking lot, and I just scream as loud as I can. Um, no one can hear you when you're in the middle of nowhere. If a tree falls, <laughs> if a lady screams in a parking lot. No. Did I really scream? I don't know. Um, <laughs> and I turn back, and I go back to the house, and I don't say anything about it. And I take the anger, and I put it in a ball, and I kind of stuff it away somewhere inside where it can be latent and it, where it feels more, most comfortable for me. And I say, you know what? The summer is going to come to an end. The ticks, they will you know, feed. <laughs> they will become engorged. They will fall off, find their new hosts. The summer will come to an end. Um, and in fact, that did happen. You know, my boss came back um, about two weeks before the end of the summer, and I think the postdoc said something about, hey, like, you know, this guy is really not good at his job. My boss called the colleague, fired this guy, and um, so I had two weeks of peace, and, uh, but I never did say anything about, hey, you know, this guy actually was making me feel really uncomfortable because I didn't really think it would matter. I didn't think that, like, I mattered that much in this scenario, this like undergraduate young researcher that I really um, had a voice in this. And I get back to my university, and so I say to my boss, okay, like, um, where's that stipend you said you would pay me? And he says, um, well, actually, I think there's like this technicality where like, you know, if you want to do your senior uh, uh, thesis research in my lab, like I actually can't pay you the money. And so I say, well, um, then I won't do my research um, in your lab for senior year, but you did say that you would pay me for the summer. Um, and he said, no. And at the time, I didn't understand that I had, you know, maybe I had some resources at my, uh, that I could have gone to see and, and done something about it, but I didn't know. And I didn't know that I had a voice and that I could really take control of this situation. And so I did what I did with Biff and I, turned around and I left. And I didn't come back to the lab. And I, you know, I could have like seen this as a sign that like, you know, science is not a good place for me. Um, but I like to think that it was these people that were abusing their power. There was just a few bad eggs of people who weren't really um, treating me with respect. And um, while I really, you know, I didn't find my voice that summer. I didn't have the courage to speak up. and. You know, I kind of like lumbered through my 20s and, you know, trying to build up my courage, build up my voice, get some more confidence. And I would really, you know, there were other people that I would face along the way that would try to kind of discourage me from science, say, like, you're not smart enough. Um, you know, there's this quality about you that isn't good for science. And I didn't always speak up to them, but um, one thing that I do feel like I did, the one way that I really feel like I did stand up for myself is that I didn't quit. I didn't quit science. And um, now I'm a, a fourth year PhD student in neuroscience, 
at UC San Diego, and I'm still working towards like finding my worth, finding my voice, but I do have the confidence that at some point I can be, uh, I can too be like my grandmother and mother, um, and that is, I could be a nasty woman. So, thank you. That was Margot Wool. Margot is pursuing a PhD in neuroscience at UC San Diego, where her research centers on how brain cells and the molecules they exchange gives rise to aggressive behaviors in fruit flies. In her free time, she can be found playing tennis, doting on her cat to which she has allergies, and taking pictures of insects she finds. Hashtag insectograms. Margot also produces a podcast called Sulk Talk, for which she weaves together character vignettes of up-and-coming scientists. Our second story today is from Stephanie Loeb. It was recorded in February 2017 in Loose Hall on the Yale University campus at an event we produced in partnership with Yale Women in Science, as well as the Yale Provost's Office and Center for Teaching and Learning. Today I'm going to share with you guys a story about how I had to hit rock bottom so that I could learn to love science again. So I arrived in Singapore just after midnight. I leave the airport. The air is warm and balmy, and it's completely different and completely exciting. So um, at this point in my life, I'm 19 years old, and I'm about to start my sophomore semester abroad at the National University of Singapore. And I'm also a confused physics major, so I decided to study physics. I think, firstly, because deep down, like all scientists, I secretly want to be an astronaut, and I think this is the best way to go about doing it. Um, But also, uh, I was really good at physics, and um, a lot of people thought physics was really hard. And so for me, this made physics special. So, um, and although I'm enjoying it, I'm kind of fumbling my way through my first year and a half of university. So I need this semester abroad to really figure out what I want to do with my life. So I'm trying to broaden my mind while also narrowing my academic focus. So suffice it to say, my expectations are really high. So the whole point of the semester is I'm supposed to be in Singapore earning a minor in nanoscience. And I'll be taking classes and those other sorts of routine things, but the major um, crux of this semester abroad is I'm going to be doing a research project. And this research and project involves investigating the toxic effects of metal oxide nanoparticles in red blood cells. So for my first day in lab, I arrive and I um, learn that I'm going to be working with a senior research associate. And her name is Jane. And Jane is amazing. So she's tall and she's beautiful and she's brilliant. She knows everything and she absolutely terrifies me. So she's been working with the lab for about 25 years. She's probably at least 20 years my senior and she knows everything about everything. And she's also really a little bit hard to work with. So my interactions with her are a little bit stressful. She is chronically impatient. When I ask her about questions in the lab, her answer is usually, did you read the papers I sent you? These sorts of things. So it's a bit of a stressful interaction, but I really, really, really want Jane to like me. So the first day I show up to work, I'm ready to go, I've got my lab coat, and she hands me a warm vial of red blood. And I'm holding it, And this week, we're going to be starting doing our first experiments. We're going to be exposing 
this blood to metal oxide nanoparticles, and we're going to be testing the way that um, the toxicity that might occur through either uh, cell lysis or hemagglutination. And the reason we want to look at this is because about this time, nanoparticles are being used in a lot of different applications in the industry. So uh, you might have silver nanoparticles in your socks because they're antimicrobial. There's also titanium dioxide nanoparticles in your sunscreen. So there's lots of easy ways for them to get into your bloodstream. So we want to mimic that by taking fresh human blood cells, exposing them to these particles, and find out what happens. So I'm going to be doing a lot of these experiments while I'm in Singapore. So the second week I arrive, I get to the lab, she gives me the same warm vial of red blood. And I'm looking at the vial, and all of a sudden I'm like, I don't know where this comes from. So I asked Jane, I'm like, Jane, where did you get this blood? Because I'm thinking in my head, it's still warm. It didn't come out of an incubator. I know we need fresh red blood cells. So this seems like a very interesting question. <laughs> so she kind of gestures over to the office nearby. She does a little wave and um, she says, today her friend was a volunteer. And this man kind of pokes his head from out from behind the counter and he gives me a wave and a little laugh. And I was like, oh, great. This is his blood. <laughs> <laughs> so we go ahead and do the experiment and uh, you know everything's kind of going really well. And then the next week, um, this is the third week in the lab, I show up in the morning, I'm a little bit early, nobody's there yet, and there's no blood waiting for me. And Jane shows up a little later, and I ask her about it, I'm like, uh, I know I need to do a test, because I've got a new kind of nanoparticle, I want to see if it lyses the red blood cells, and she says, oh, I'll get my friend to volunteer, you can run up to the clinic and meet him there, and there he'll give you the blood. So I'm like, alright, that sounds fine, I race up to the clinic, and when I get there, I recognize her friend immediately, it's the same man from last week. So I'm immediately feeling kind of guilty, really awkward. He's giving me his own blood to run what I'm thinking are really silly experiments. What if I mess them up? What if I don't get any results? What if I drop his blood all over the floor? Any number of horrible things can happen and I am really worried about letting this guy give me his blood every week for the next six months. So <laughs> I look up at him and I'm say, I say, um, me, would you like me to volunteer today? Is it okay if I volunteer for this experiment? And he looks kind of amused, but in the end he says, sure, why not? So he makes me sign a number of forms and then I take his place in the chair at the clinic and we both watch silently as the nurse draws the blood from my arm and then hands it back to me in the same sterile warm vial. But when I get back to the lab, I've got my blood in my hand, I'm all ready to do my experiment, I see Jane, and I can tell immediately that something is wrong. Jane is really angry. She says that I've wasted her friend's time. He went up to the clinic to offer blood for the experiment, and instead I gave mine. She says that I've embarrassed her and that I never should have done this. And I want to explain to her, I just feel really guilty using the blood over and over again, but you know, she's not really listening. I don't really know what to say. And Jane and I were not having the best relationship to begin with, and she's my mentor, and I, I don't really know what else to say. So I just go about doing the experiment. But from then on, week after week, if I want to do the experiment, there's no more volunteers. I have to go up to the clinic, have my blood drawn, given back to me, and go run the experiments. So at this time, you might think the story's sounding a little dark, like young girl goes on adventure in a foreign country, has to have her own blood drawn for science experiments. But it's not all bad. It's not all bad. Um, I'm like meeting a lot of great people. I've made a lot of friends in my classes and in my dorm. We're going on all these great adventures on the weekend, traveling all over Southeast Asia. And even my uh, relationship with Jane becomes some, somewhat comedic. 
So she's um, a little bit different, difficult for me to deal with, but I'm trying my best. I think there's a lot of like cultural and um, generational barriers. Uh, she has this habit when I would ask her a question in the lab, something like, hey Jane, should I autoclave this after using it? And she would respond by nodding her head in a quick figure eight. And this would leave me totally bewildered. I would be like, yes, no, figure eight. I don't know what that means. Um, she also had this really amazing habit of ending all her emails with dot, 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 like three periods in a row. So I'd send her a question like, how does this data set look? Do you think we need more experiments to you know, get the right number of replicates? And she would just say, no, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and as you might imagine, this was a very intense source of anxiety for me. I, even, even the bloodletting, which we grew to call it, started to be a, a little bit of a joke. Some of uh, my friends, my uh, classmates noticed that I had these track marks on my arm <laughs> and they, I, they were like Stephanie are you like doing heavy drugs which was really funny in the context Singapore has really really harsh minimum mandatory sentences for drug use so that was kind of funny even within that context um, I also started to get really engaged about doing experiments on my own blood like I'm feeling like I'm really a part of this research every <laughs> every day I had to do uh, use a cell counter to like, count the number of red blood cells in each sample I was taking and one day uh, after a a weekend trip to Indonesia, I get back and I'm looking at my cells under the microscope and they look super, super weird. So they're all spidery and they're kind of like looking up at me, totally different. And I start to convince myself for like a full five minutes that I've contracted some sort of really serious bloodborne illness. But it turns out I was just using a dirty microscope slide. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so by this time, uh, my experience in the lab starts to be pretty routine. Get up in the morning, go to the clinic, have my blood taken, get back to the lab, extract, analyze, incubate made test the samples. Um, but uh, one day, I'm working in the lab, it's pretty quiet, so it's probably around lunchtime, and I realized that my um, deionized water bottle is empty. And I know I need deionized water for this experiment, I can't use tap water because it's got chlorine in it, so I go over to the secondary tank, and I see that it's also empty. And I realize that this hasn't happened before, and I have no idea where they fill this tank from. So I'm looking around, and there's nobody in the lab, so there's nobody to ask, but luckily there's one of these nice blue and clear wash bottles that any wet chemist will certainly be familiar with it. And it says distilled water in nice, like happy letters on the side. So I was like, perfect, this is exactly what I need. I only need a few milliliters of it and I will return it right back. So I take the wash bottle to my station and I start doing the experiment. And people start filing back in from lunch. And then all of a sudden I look over and Jane's right behind me, she's watching me do the experiment and she's holding the distilled water bottle. And she's looking at it and she's looking at me and she says, do you know what's in this? And I'm thinking in my head, yeah, it's distilled water, I'm pretty sure. But I don't wanna say that because she looks really mad. And uh, <laughs> she then asked me a question that at the time I found really surprising. She says, did you smell it? And immediately my brain goes back to environmental health and safety training. You never smell unknown chemicals, right? So really, really confidently I look up at her and I said, no, I did not smell it. <laughs> This wasn't the answer that she was expecting. <laughs> she, she's livid. She's really, really angry. She's holding the bottle and she says, why would you use something when you don't know what it is? She tells me my whole experiment from the week, week is ruined. She says I have to throw it out. And I can see that other members from the lab are coming back to lunch. Everybody's there. Everybody's watching. She looks at me and she says, how could you have been so stupid? As you might imagine, this was a really tough 
moment for me. And I did not know how I was going to deal. This is a Wednesday. My humiliation in the lab happened on a Wednesday. And I did not know how I was going to deal with Thursday morning. But I knew how I was going to deal with Wednesday night. And that <laughs> involved having many drinks. So I wake up Thursday morning, and uh, the sun's coming in. I had this dorm room that looked over this kind of beautiful tropical garden. And I look out on my windowsill, and all my clothes from last night are sitting there, and there's this little bird hopping along, and he's like picking up little bits of vomit. <laughs> and he's just taking a nice big bird shit right in my shoes. And all of a sudden, I'm like, this is rock bottom. <laughs> Science had always felt special to me because I was good at it. And all of a sudden, I was trying my hardest and I was failing at everything and probably also losing way too much blood. <laughs> I knew that science still was there in the world, that there were all these great equations and ways of describing everything from the motion of the moon to the motion of a marble to these tiny nanoparticles that I'm trying to work with. And I used to have it all right there at my fingertips, and suddenly I felt like it was all beyond my grasp, and I was devastated. So I get up, shower, got to go to class. I've got four hours of nanochemistry and spectroscopy methods lectures. And by 8.30, I'm sitting on my computer Googling how to switch my major to anthropology because I have made the executive decision that science sucks. So at this point, I'm pretty far in the semester. I've only got about a month left. And I've decided I'm just going to get in and get out. I look at the data I've taken so far, and I see that I probably only need one or two more experiments to try and get out. So I go to the lab in the evenings and at lunch when I'm sure no one's going to be there. I get the rest of the data, and my final deliverable for this is a report. And it's supposed to be a long report putting together all my research. So I put it all together, and then I send it off to Jane for review. And right, right after I send it off, I'm taking away for um, a weekend trip to Cambodia with some of my friends. So on my trip, I kind of got this report in the back of my head, and so after like a great day of going to look at all these temples and having all these amazing experiences, I separate from my friends, and I'm like, I'm going to go to an internet cafe, I'm going to check my email, because I have to know what's going on. So as I'm sitting there, the internet is quite painfully slow, an email pops up, and I see that Jane has gone through my report. The email just has one line in it, and it just says, Stephanie, you have been a good and hardworking student. P.S. I have some edits. <laughs> so <laughs> I have a lot of time to reflect as I'm sitting alone in this internet cafe while my 30-page document with over 100 comments slowly loads. And for the first time ever, as I'm kind of going over the things she's written, I don't feel so alone. I feel like her criticism is collaboration. And I realize what I'm doing is actually just a tiny contribution to her life's work, that she had been giving her blood for these experiments long before I came along, and that she wants us to work together, and it matters to her that much, and that's why she's so hard on me. So in the end, that experience of putting my blood, sweat, and tears into the research project <laughs> felt more special than science had ever felt before. That was Stephanie Loeb. Stephanie is a PhD candidate in environmental engineering at Yale University. She came to Yale with the support of a Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada Fellowship to study surface plasmon resonance and the photothermal properties of nanomaterials for solar water treatment. Prior to moving to the U.S., Stephanie completed an undergraduate degree in physics and nanoscience jointly with the University of Toronto and the National University of Singapore. 
If you enjoyed today's story or a fan of the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon.com. If you sign up to donate $10 a month or more, we'll list your name in the show programs across the country. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Company Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is produced by me, Liz Neely, Aaron Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Shane Hanlon, Rosie Waldron, Cassie Soliday, and Nissa Greenberg, with help from Farah Maud, Eli Chen, and Skylar Bear. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Camp Pass Kramer and Luce Hall for hosting these shows, and to my colleagues at Story Collider for never making me do the dishes or draw my own blood. Thanks for listening. 